My name is Aaron Brown, and I used to be a CIA covert operations officer, an Army Ranger sergeant, and a deputy sheriff. And I'm currently an entrepreneur, a technologist, and a rabble rouser. And this is the Undersimplified Podcast. Welcome to episode three of the Undersimplified Podcast. In today's episode, we spoke with Annie Jacobson. Annie is a New York Times bestselling author, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a journalist, and using the title she prefers most, a storyteller. Annie has published six books, including the popular Area 51 and The Pentagon's Brain, which is about the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, which we speak about at length, and its cousin, IARPA, which is the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Agency. She's also written a couple of books on the CIA and some of the history of other intelligence programs. Her seventh book, which is yet to be published and for which she provides few details, is about nuclear war. You can find more about Annie's social media and books in the show notes. Annie is an important guest for the Undersimplified podcast at this stage because we strive to interact with a diverse set of perspectives. And Annie certainly brings that as the first guest who is from outside the government. And we want to be intentional about hearing opinions like hers, for which especially I might disagree. I make no bones about the fact that I am sympathetic to my old employer, the CIA, and and sympathetic to the intelligence community and the special operations community as a whole. And this brings a risk because I will gravitate towards opinions from that community with which I agree. And Annie, as an outside observer of those communities, is the type of person that we want to have challenging conversations with. And also because as an author, she comes with a certain set of understandings about these organizations, and they are in some cases somewhat controversial. She has had critics point out that she writes about sensational topics like aliens and UFOs and assassins in the government. And that's a sensitive, particularly that last one with regard to the CIA is a sensitive one uh, for me. But Annie will say that she's a storyteller first and foremost, and that she tells the stories that she thinks people are going to want to hear. And in telling those stories, she goes out and finds sources that want to talk to her and tell those stories. And, And that's then the story that she has to tell if she's being objective. And, and, and frankly, that that resonated with me. And just to be very clear, Annie is an incredibly smart person on these topics. She knows a lot about these topics. She frankly knows more than I do on almost all of them. She's deeply researched them. She's able to speak off the cuff about them. And even though some of her critics will quibble about things that she sometimes gets wrong in her books, the things that she just knows off the top of her mind is is absolutely impressive. And she is proof that you need not be part of a community in order to really understand that community well. As expected, there were some points in the conversation where we disagreed. And some of those disagreements were brought up deliberately by me. One in particular revolves around her book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, which is a book that chronicles the paramilitary operations side of CIA, starting with the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA and the element that has a very storied past in World War II operating behind enemy lines. 
doing sabotage and all number of covert action operations at that time. Annie in the book follows that lineage through to the present, and in doing so, she talks about paramilitary operations that involve killing and describes them in a way that would lead readers to think that assassination cells or assassination missions are part of the CIA's current operations, and that's just not true. And I have to say, I thought Annie handled that line of questioning just exceptionally well. I think she is a magnanimous person. She was patient with me while I somewhat struggled to get that line of questioning out. And then she very adeptly stepped through her reasoning for writing her book that way. We might still disagree to some extent about what actually exists out there right now in the covert world. But I think we demonstrated that it is possible to have a disagreement at that level, especially a disagreement on something for which Annie bases her professional identity on, and as do I, in fact. And we came away having conducted the conversation constructively and, I think, effectively. Overall, I came away having very much enjoyed this conversation with Annie, and I am happy to say that I am a fan of hers at this point, and I am glad that I was able to have one of our very first conversations on the Undersimplified podcast that demonstrated, at least to me, that I could appreciate another person's perspective through conversations like this and have a disagreement, but yet still come through the other side with a new relationship with someone that I respect and hope to do this many more times again. We are just dipping our toes in here for these types of conversations, and we have some amazing guests on the near horizon who will have opinions at least as diverse as Annie's, and I very much look forward to disagreeing with them a little bit here too. Before we move on, I want to make a couple of notes about the podcast as I've done previously. Please, we need your help. In order for this podcast to continue and gain the popularity that we need in order to support it, we need all of you, anyone who is enjoying this podcast, to right now please go and follow us wherever you are listening. Give us a five-star review if you like any of this content. If you think you know someone who will find this interesting or valuable, please forward it along to them. All of these things are exactly what we need at this stage in a brand new podcast. I would also like to mention our exclusive sponsor, the 2430 Group. You can find them via the link in the show notes. The 2430 Group is a nonprofit dedicated to helping protect our critical technology and intellectual property from some of our most pernicious adversaries, namely the governments of China and Russia. And now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Annie Jacobson. Annie Jacobson, welcome to the Undersimplified podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, this is quite the treat for us. You will be the first person that we have recorded with who is from completely outside the government. We, we have a plan to hopefully not just record all of my friends from the military and the government. And now that you're here, we, we can say that we've effectively at least executed the beginning part of that plan. So thanks for joining us. There you go. You got your first author journalist on the show. This is, I'm happy it's me. And, and I was I, you already answered question number one before I had to ask it. I wanted to ask you, you've done so many things throughout your career. You've written a number of books on a number of different topics. And I wanted to ask you how, how you do identify yourself mm-hmm. at this point when, when people say, what do you do? And mm-hmm. it sounds like author journalist is what you went to intuitively there. I'm a storyteller, really. I mean, I love great stories. And I find 
the truth to be the most interesting stories. I guess you could also say I'm a national security reporter because I always write about war and weapons, about security and secrets. That's the, the subjects that are covered in all six of my books, soon to be seven. Well, congratulations on, I'll, I'll congratulate you in advance on the seventh. Uh, storyteller is, is a great way to define yourself. I, I'd like to think of myself as the same. It's something that I definitely do enjoy. And I wanted to ask you, because we all arrive here on different paths, how did you end up in this particular line of work? Not just an author and journalist and storyteller, but author and journalist and storyteller in areas that are extraordinarily unique, I think. I think there's two leading, two things that kind of lead the charge with my desire to tell stories, to hear stories, to know stories. One has to do with people who are extraordinary, right? And that has to do a lot with circumstance, I find. So much emphasis these days is on birthright. And sure, biology is destiny in a way. But really and truly, what people do is what interests me. I mean, my God, I have had the privilege in my six books that I've written of hearing some of the most extraordinary people get themselves into and out of astonishing situations that, quite frankly, most humans, including myself, could simply not endure. And that is a story I want to listen to and I want to write about. Yeah, and I mean, that's a fascinating way to capture it. And I think it's no surprise that these topics are the topics that people want to hear about, want to read about, in your case, also want to watch television about. Do you, from all of these things that you've investigated, do you have one of your investigations that stands out in your mind as the one that was your favorite to conduct? Uh, impossible to choose. That would be like saying, who's your favorite child? You know, there are two processes writing books. There being a journalist, there's the listening to the sources and then the writing of the material. But for me, they always go hand in hand. They're interwoven. I always have a journal with me. Sometimes I'll do an interview with someone and sit in the parking lot and write what will turn out to be almost verbatim paragraphs in a book. Other times I'll labor for God knows how long to get something right, trying to reset it in my mind based on an audio tape interview. But everyone that I have interviewed that ends up making the cut of my books is, is, is just, is a remarkable human being. I mean, I, I just smile thinking about it. You know, I also really like old people. I find that as I get older, right, um, to be a really interesting thing to reflect on. So I've been writing books now for what, 12, 13 years. And I didn't know when I began that I would spend so much time interviewing people that are in their 80s and 90s, but that's what I do. And there's something super cool about that because people who have done extraordinary things, I find, tend to have extraordinary memories. And like 
in an interesting way, maybe decades have passed since anyone even cared to hear that story. Them flying a U-2 over the Soviet Union. Them doing a recon mission behind enemy lines in Laos. No one's listened, heard that story for decades. And then I come along and want to know about it. Imagine the chemistry there. Yeah, this is a fascinating thing because, you know, I think so many of those folks, when they get to 70 or 80 or 90, the thing they want to do most is tell those stories and have someone want to listen to them. I've had so many family members write to me and say, thank you so much for like revealing grandpa to me. Or I've even had wives write to me and say, thank you so much for revealing a part of my husband that I wasn't able to know about. Either because, and people have even been as honest as to say, because I didn't ask or because I couldn't access it. Sure, and I, I imagine there's some procrastination in there too. You, you always intend to go after those stories from your relatives and something always comes up and there you are, you swoop in and, and do it professionally and, and capture it in writing for everyone to read uh, forever. And yeah, I can imagine they're quite grateful. Well, I'd like to, uh, seeing as how you didn't choose which child you loved most uh, of these books, I, I'd like to point you towards one that is probably the one that, that comes up very often. And because I just, how can you have a podcast and not start with aliens? <laughs> uh, and Area 51. And this is a this is an interesting one for me because I spent a good portion of a career in CIA. And just because you're there in CIA doesn't mean you can, you know, click the, the CIA Wikipedia article for Area 51 and, and read about it. And so this was never a topic that, uh, you know, came by way of my desk, but I'm, I'm very much interested in it. And uh, talking about aliens, I think, interests everyone as soon as aliens come up what's the first mm -hmm. thing that comes to your mind on this topic it's obviously rich with conspiracy theories and real classified documents and people who know stories but they don't necessarily connect with other people's stories and strikes me as a fascinating one i hear alien i hear ufo uap um and i just automatically think storytelling i think archetype myth religion secrets I know more than you know, those kind of uh, feelings we humans have about ourselves and about one another. You know, I saw that. I saw it with my own eyes, you know. No, you did I mean, this is what I've been listening to and hearing about for 13 years. I mean, on a practical level, who's got the information? I don't think CIA. I, as I often mention, I think NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, the agency that itself was classified for 31 years. No one even knew it existed, but its employees. Um, and I've interviewed many of the early founders of NRO for my Area 51 book and others. I, I always get a little bit of a wink and a nod whenever I am speaking to someone who knows a lot about NRO. That that is where the real secrets lie, the real truth about who knows what in the space domain. So why why do you think it's NRO? What about uh, NRO's actions or, or the mission that they have? I, I'm going to be straight sure. up honest, as I, I always hope to be. I know very little about the NRO myself. Okay, so back up a pinch, right, when I was... When 
origin stories are part of what I write about because I think they're in- incredibly interesting to de-intimidate you, right? So in other words, if you just go back to how something began, you can you can understand it. I, I began writing a lot of these books when my kids were kind of like, you know, little. And it was like you'd sit with them trying to explain basic physics and realize, oh my God, the most elemental beginnings of things helps you understand how things advance. And if you look at Area 51 and you think of overhead surveillance and you think of technologies looking looking at the world from above, right? Before that, you know from the CIA, so much was human, human intelligence. And suddenly, in the 1950s, that's not very long ago. The whole world of SIGINT, signals intelligent, imagent, image intelligent, mascent, you know, materials intelligence. This blossomed all at Area 51 in this tiny little dry desert lake bed in the middle of the Nevada desert adjacent to where nuclear bombs were going off because that would keep it secret. And I interviewed the very first director of science, of CIA's directorate of science and technology, Bud Whelan. And he sat with me and like gave me the origin story about all of this. And I write about it in Area 51, so I won't drone on about that. But that is kind of to, to, to speak to the point of how the National Reconnaissance Office came to be. As the CIA was building the U-2 spy plane, which was going to be the first groundbreaking way to spy on the Soviet Union from overhead, because we couldn't get any human sources on the ground. Trying to get spies across the Ural River it was impossible. And so the, the CIA came up with this idea about sending an airplane to do it. It had to fly really high because it would get shot down. I mean, the, the technical specs are fascinating. But at that same time, the CIA was knowing it was going to get shot down and thinking, hmm, what else can we create? Dr. Bud Whelan led the charge to create the world's first satellite called Corona. This is all chronicled in any, in Area 51 for any of the nerds that want to know more. Want to go deep, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's where it began. Right? And now, oh my God, now you think about the 8,000 satellites circling the globe. And they, they bring us everything from television to, you know, ICBM alerts. And they're, yeah, it, they're on track to increase exponentially as this goes commercial and, and commercial satellite imagery becomes much more prevalent than anything the NRO will, will ever be able to do. So we're, we're in, uh, in for it. I don't know if I believe that. On the so- on a numbers uh, category. Right. So like, you know, you get a lot, obviously sensors from mm-hmm. specialized satellites can do many, many things, some of which I will not talk about from this side of the microphone, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll welcome your comments uh, mm-hmm. on those things. But I think there's something to be said about just sheer numbers of satellites and what they can do mm-hmm. when you go with what Planet Labs hopes to do and mm-hmm. image the entire Earth once a yes. day. I mean, that, that's a that's a life-changing moment once we can have a, an up-to-date image of the Earth every single day when, when they reach that, and I, and I suspect they will. But yeah, no, you're right. Uh, I, I'm certain NRO will race to have the most high-tech satellite for hopefully the rest of the future that I have mm-hmm. to worry about that we have it and, and not someone else. I have yet to really honestly know about a technology developed in the civilian sector that didn't have 
either a DARPA or IARPA origin story. And I have even spoken about that public, like publicly, I have made the misstatement of saying Google did this better than NRO. And I have been taken aside by a kind of a spook in an overcoat who showed me his card and said, let me correct you for the record in a way that I can, that is not, you know, and give me some unclassified information to demonstrate that I was wrong. In other words, I really do believe, and again, definitely could stand to be corrected, that the U.S. government science and technology agencies lead science and technology. They do not follow. So you're definitely taking us into the very next topic that I would I would love to discuss, because this is an, an interesting one for me as I transition from government and obviously having an inside perspective and now to the private sector and, and getting at least a bit of an outside perspective. And I would like to pull the thread on that a little bit. I do wonder if that will remain the case, that the government will lead technology, at least from the perspective of innovation, because I feel like innovation now has shifted back to the private sector now. This shift has happened a couple times over the last hundred years of technological innovation anyways. And I think you could be forgiven for thinking it was Google at one point when it might have been DARPA because sometimes now it could be Google, then DARPA, and then Google again mm-hmm. or, or choose your company. I, I only recently, in doing some research for uh, this discussion, learned that Siri started effectively at DARPA, which is as good an example of something you would not suspect unless you knew it already. That techno- The Google technology, by the way, began with the Navy, so it wasn't DARPA. I was corrected by... Anyways, keep going. No, that ma- and it makes sense. Submarine. Like you- submarine, you know, looking at submarine warfare and its ELINT systems was how that began. But anyways, I cut you off. No, Please that makes sense. Going. No, and, and yeah, that's right. I was going to toss it back to you and just pulled the thread of what makes you think that the government will still be at the head of innovation when there's just so many easier paths to innovation in the private sector? Well... I think my understanding of it right now could change comes from research and interviews I was doing when I wrote The Pentagon's Brain, which was, is about DARPA. And just a little tiny detail in, in the first director of DARPA's uh, statement to Congress back in the 1950s when DARPA was being created, when he was asked, what is it you are trying to do with this new fangled agency at the Pentagon? And don't we already have something like that? And Neil McElroy said, at DARPA, we will create the vast weapon systems of the future. And so he didn't say, we're going to make sure that what we have is the best. He was specifically talking about the future. And that's where the concept of blue sky technology comes from. This idea that you had to be ahead of everything that is happening. And so when books later, I'm writing about technology systems, ubiquitous technical systems that are looking at the whole world in many ways, and people might say, well, China is more advanced than us. My answer to that is, well, hang on, China copied what we did, right? They are very good at stealing intellectual property that is developed by the Defense Department, or a whole system of intellectual property, a system of systems, and then advancing on that really quickly because they didn't have to spend the money, time, treasure, etc. on their R&D. Now then, 
guess what? You can be sure that DARPA knew that was going to happen and is already creating the next generation vast weapon system of the future. In this case, we're talking about a surveillance system because they witness that time and time again. You know, I'll close it with this little parable, right? Go back to Area 51. When Gary Powers flew the U-2 over the Soviet Union, got shot, shot down in 1960, everyone was this, oh my God, you know, it was like groundbreaking news, right? From my interviews, from these declassified documents, I was able to demonstrate that years earlier, Richard Bissell of the CIA knew that the U-2 was going to be shot down over the Soviet Union. <laughs> they were already building the A-12 Oxcart out at Area 51 because they knew the U-2 would become obsolete at any moment. And that, I think, is the same analogy for the surveillance systems in China. So I agree with much of what you said. And then I'm going to take it again a step further because I think what's happening in China is a really interesting case where, where we can noodle around uh, on this point a bit. The thing that I think China is proving very adept at and and also has a an upper hand in is that they are proving really good at consuming, preserving, and then using vast amounts of data, huge, huge amounts of data. Uh, now, obviously, Google and, and various other U.S. entities, even I think in the United States government, has proven fairly capable of that. But we're bound by, Google is bound by a number of laws and ethics and, and morals and, and, and the government even more so. And China has taken a different path on this. And, and they are actually weaponizing these surveillance tools against the Uyghurs, which I've, I've heard you speak about before in Xinjiang province. And I think because they have a multi-million person population against which they can array all of these technical sensors and technical collection and surveillance tools, that they are able to more rapidly engineer the next generation of surveillance tools or hone surveillance tools with real world practice that we would never want to do as a country and you know, assuming no major law changes in the near term we would never be able to do from a legal structure and i just wonder looking at you know in this case that's a government and civil fusion in china the civil private sector of china is not separate from the government and therefore they can iterate back and forth faster than the u.s can and that plus a test population to me gives them a, a serious advantage that I don't see how we compete with it. And I, I just wonder if you've given mm -hmm. uh, any thought to that and because and, this is what keeps me up at night mm -hmm. and some of my compatriots. Well, there's a couple things. So I think what you're saying is, is China, is the Communist Party of China going to be able to somehow double down on all this technology and and advance beyond let's say a DARPA, into the weapon system of the future that outperforms ours before we even get there. Yeah, I think that's right. And thank you for separating out the Communist yeah. Party of China from China. Mm -hmm. This is not just a, a good way to discuss it from a, an accuracy standpoint. It actually muddles the picture when you don't think of it split like that because, again, the whole system is designed to protect a party, not a country, Absolutely. Not a constitution, I, I think, just a party. I think you have to say that because I think, I mean, personally, I think a communist government is very dangerous to the people because it, it just like you said, it's looking out for itself. So I don't know. 
I would like to say I wouldn't give China that much credit, but that's then I those words even come out of my mouth, and that that sounds like you know famous last words because they have brilliant engineers. But if we talk specifically about their their biometric surveillance program. I think there's two parts of that which are important, and I do think this is an issue that everyone wants to pay attention to, and no one is paying attention to, right? So the amount of people that ask me about aliens and don't ask me about biometric surveillance technology is like the scales of justice gone awry, because people should not be worried about aliens, in my opinion, and they should be very worried about communist party-style biometric surveillance, right? So let's just break it down for a second, what we're talking about, because you have a system whereby the government of China has singled out what it sees as a, a segment of its population that it believes it is threatening to its existence, the Uyghurs. And they have therefore required a program called Physicals for All. And that requires every person of Uyghur descent to submit fingerprints, iris scans, and DNA. Okay, so with that information, with that biometric information, the Communist Party now has a catalog of a certain group of people. Separate from that are the overhead surveillance systems and the ground surveillance systems, everything from, you know, you walk down the street and you see cameras on the light poles and except go on and on and on, right? They have that kind of a system that is looking at people. And so what happens if people are already cataloged, is the system, the big grand surveillance system, is able to identify those people by number instantly because the algorithms and the computer systems are so much more powerful than any human ever could be. You know, long gone are the days of the policeman saying, may I see your license? And then like, oh, you're so-and-so and calling it in. But when you say China can do things that we can't, that's where I take issue because I don't agree because my research reporting and interviewing with sources tells me that the government here in the United States is in a manner, maybe not with the same kind of draconian insistence of the Communist Chinese Party, requiring Annie Jacobson to give up her DNA, is nonetheless creating a massive catalog of all of its citizens, including me. And so you have to really, really live off the grid with purpose to not be part of that system. And you also have to, by the way, never travel outside the United States because I'll end with this, that when we, we, you know, everyone always thinks when you come into the United States and you stare into that camera that they're taking your, your picture. They're not. They're, well, they are, but they're also taking your iris scans. Right. I mean, even to come join you today, I've I've signed up for Clear uh, to navigate the airports much more quickly most of the time. And yeah, the function of that is by way of your iris. Uh, you, you sally up to the machine and and share the and the State Department recently turned over all of its photographs of all of the citizens, the ones that it has photographs of, to the biometric divisions of the FBI, and so. You have a catalog going on. I mean, a million questions are raised from the pandemic. I have always thought, you know, in times of war and pandemic, governments tend to move off of their more democratic ideals out of necessity, right? And this is such a, such a dangerous topic to, to 
or not dangerous, but it's a very, one wants to tread carefully when discussing this issue. I certainly do, because I think loose thinking, you know, what others would call conspiratorial thinking, I often just call loose thinking. It's just like, it's just like, you know, you haven't applied logical rigor to the yeah. You yeah. haven't really, which is which is okay. Most of us do loose thinking a lot of the time, but you haven't really carefully parsed out what it is you're suggesting, right? Which is important in this day and age because of how wacky things are things are becoming about certain ideas. But I do think that the pandemic indicated to all of us that you know DNA testing has become, which seemed so draconian when you think of Chinese, the, the Communist Chinese Party taking DNA samples from people, like, that's spooky. But there was a suggestion to me when I looked deep inside and spoke to analysts with, you know, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency about all this. There's some real concern about what those metrics were. But then, even more freaky to me at the time was what was called, what, what has now been called pattern of life. Okay, activity-based intelligence, ABI, which is now an official intelligence collecting process in of the United States government, but wasn't then. So the point here is that the the Facebook of it services the government ultimately, because the government, and when I say the government, I mean the in intelligence community, and then with its military partners, realizes how to leverage that. So activity-based intelligence becomes super interesting and spooky to me because it says you are what you do. And so it says we are going to follow people to figure out who they are based on what they do. And I have interviewed many of the engineers and scientists who worked on these overhead systems. Gorgon Stare, for example. Argus is. These are military systems that were in Afghanistan, in Iraq, staring down at would-be terrorists from thousands of feet above, right? And then collecting intelligence on them and figuring out who to drone strike and kill. Activity-based intelligence. You are what you do. Well, that worked a certain way in the war theater. And we know how it ended for a lot of people. And a lot of people standing next to bad guys, for better or for worse. But we must ask ourselves, is that where it's going in civil society? You're into the space right now where I will often either let my mind wander or I'll drive it uh, in this direction and drive it into a cement wall. Oh, uh, <laughs> sometimes that's what it feels like or into a dark space. And I, can I mean, no I'm waiting for the first person to be drone striked in America by an American drone. You mean? Yep. God help us that that never happens. You, you couldn't sit across from a greater opponent than me on that topic because that slope is so slippery. It's not a slope, it's a cliff. And, and once we fall off, we're, we're not going back up. Okay, but I'm going to interrupt here just for a second, no, just please. to be agitative, if that's a word. Look, You're in I good was, company. I make I up words all the time. I was reporting on drones, and I have, I wouldn't even say mixed feelings. I have definitive feelings on both sides of the aisle about drones, drones, right? But And a lot of information on them. But what I did find fascinating was how many people went berserk over drone strikes, right? And how also in the same token, how many people ignore, like, 
in other words, what, what I'm talking about now is putting your own value system, putting putting your value system of a, of a democratic civilian into the war theater. It's just, it's very complex. You had people, the same people that were the code pink ladies come to mind that were for better or for worse, you know, storming Congress and furious that the Bush administration was drone striking people to death. Well, and, and then torturing people. And then you had Obama comes along and I wrote about this in Surprise Kilvanish and solves the in, torture program or the enhanced interrogation program with a drone, with an advanced drone strike program and ends up drone striking more terrorists than the Bush administration did. And there's less comments about that because you know, fill in the dots. And so jump forward to where we are now. And people will remember the furor people had about drones, right? And then all of a sudden, I opened the news yesterday or the day before, and there's a Star Wars meet character meme about how great, you know, it's like pro drone striking Russian soldiers. And my only point here is pay attention. Pay attention to the weapon systems at work and your own perception of whether you decide that's an appropriate use of lethal power. This is a fascinating one. It's it's fraught with hazard for me, as you might expect, given my career. But I think I can dabble in some areas here that would be fascinating for folks to hear from you on. So... I want to go back to the potential drone strike in the United States and, and just draw that one out just a little bit because it, at least in my understanding of you know the, the origin of why drones and, and why you use them the way that they were used was had to do with people existing in places that couldn't be gotten to any other way and represented a persistent and real threat. And those... Things were in conflict. Can't get to them, but yet they are. We, we've all agreed. Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, Kofor Black and Hank Crumpton wanting to take him out with a paramilitary team and being told by CIA, no, you can't. So I've, I've heard these names and things previously. So you can go back even further. I was in the Rangers in the late 90s after the bombings in Africa. And Bill Clinton, you know, had sort of the same issue where he was thinking about should he send troops or, or you know, should he use, in this case, cruise missiles to potentially take out Bin Laden? And our units were all on short recall. I didn't know it at that time. I've since learned this history via other means, but this was a, a fascinating thing to look back on. Uh, but you're right. Uh, it's a perfect example. Uh, Afghanistan then, Afghanistan again, and then Pakistan, of course. But I wonder, to go back to the U.S. example, because I think people will key in on this, and, and certainly the folks who know me well will expect me to pull on this a bit. What do you think would be the situation in the United States? What would have to come about such that the U.S. government or an apparatus of the U.S. government would decide that they needed to take a drone strike rather than any of the other means available to them to carry out whatever action needs to be carried out? I mean, I can think of 50 or 150. I'll take two to start with, <laughs> but I'm I, I, 50 but, is, okay. is way more well, than you, I can imagine. You could but. go to the classic nuclear weapon time, ticking time bomb scenario, right? That would be a classic one because it would give reason for why the offset technology had to be there, why you had to strike someone at a distance. In, in the nuclear bomb scenario, you're envisioning a bad actor has somehow has a dirty bomb 
or a nuclear, doesn't matter, something that could cause extraordinary damage, and they're off in an area that, for whatever reason... They're um, working on the weapon. They're assembling the weapon. So, but in this case, if they're assembling the weapon, it's not yet ready. If we know that that's what happened, is happening, it's not yet ready to go. Um, what what would be the thinking of the government to go with a drone strike over? You know, in this case, it would probably be the FBI's hostage rescue team that would be called in for this. Or you could even see a U.S. military force being called up to work on this particular problem. There are forces whose sole job it is to think about handling this exact scenario. And so, yeah, I just wonder how it would come about such that a drone strike would make more sense than a surgical team going in and dealing with that individual and that threat. And, the, so, and we're, we're so, okay. way off in hypothetical but land now, so I, I get that. The specifics of that, I think I would leave to the Jack, writer, the Jack Ryan writer's room where I spent some time. Oh, and, and again, that's entertainment. But what isn't entertainment is real life, right? That's real life is serious business. And... I, when I think of drone strikes in the United States, I think less about Jack Ryan and I think more about the reporting I have done on actual drone strikes, on pe- that people I have interviewed who have pulled the trigger on those drone strikes, who have authorized those drone strikes, like lawyers at CIA, who have said, don't send the drone, send me, because they're CIA paramilitary operators and they'd rather go kill the individual themselves. I've interviewed all of these people. I've written about them in all of my books. And the decision to do so, drone strike versus surprise, kill, vanish, knife at the throat, is in my experience of listening, a decision that comes from above. A decision that comes from the president. And... And in very rare circumstances, the president turned over those decisions to the CIA, right? Maybe the drone strike in the United States is is a little bit harder, at least for me, to visualize how that scenario would come about. But we could probably hypothetical five more times and, and get to one, I think, just by briefly thinking about it. What I am more concerned about at this point is the drone as an autonomous weapon system in large numbers. I think what we're looking at here in the not-too-distant future, if it's not already here, is the idea of drone swarms, vast numbers of drones being given targets or marching orders and then allowed to autonomously, I'm going to say decide, I'm not sure if decide is the right word here from an AI standpoint, but autonomously the drone itself will make decisions about how it carries out those orders. And that's an area to me that just seems extraordinarily scary. If I put myself in the mindset of, you know, 20-year-old Army Ranger Sergeant Aaron Brown, and I think about what it would feel like to be on a battlefield where at any time a horde of drones could come over the ridgeline and engage you autonomously from any direction, that just strikes fear. Well, without, without a shadow of a doubt, that is precisely where the Defense Department is going and has stated as such in its documents going back to 2012 when I was writing the book, The Pentagon's Brain. There is not even a question that the Defense Department is moving toward having autonomous weapon systems. And I think the most interesting you know, pushback against that, which I wrote about, was an, uh, a series of, of interviews and questionnaires with generals, and this is back in 2012, asking how they 
felt about moving towards autonomous weapons, moving toward first, you know, man-computer interface and then fully autonomous weapons like you're talking about. And the majority of the generals said, we do not want to go in that direction. At which point, DARPA began a program with something called the moral molecule to look into chemistry about how to change people's opinions about things. And when you look at those, you have to read a lot more of the details of it before you really think that's impossible. You're, Just, you're saying that the people can't see, but I was smiling at that one because I've it, not, yeah, it, I've not heard it. It's the absolute truth, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and so that is where things are. And, you know, the Jason scientists who have long been associated with conspiracy. I interviewed Murph Goldberger, the founder of the Jasons, before he died. What are the Jasons? I'm not familiar with. The Jason scientists were starting in you know, the early days of DARPA, the intellectuals, the physicists, the scientists who solved the government's hardest science and technology problems, mm. beginning with nuclear weapons, beginning with ICBM weapon systems. And they were all scientists who were full-time professors and part-time defense scientists. And they have worked for the government for decades until the last decade, when they started to push back against a lot of the Defense Department's ideas about things, specifically autonomous weapons, specifically putting brain chips in wounded warriors' heads and working at being able to control brain signals remotely. The Jason's, in this case, to give them back use of a limb or something. Well, well, that's the pretense, but the problem, and this is these are quotes from the Jason scientists, which you can read exactly in my book, right? The, the Jason scientists were like, uh, that is a bad idea. That is a bad idea. It could lean to fill in the dots and add the Chinese Communist Party's behavior, okay? Mm -hmm. And what happened? The Jason scientists were fired mm. in favor of the Defense Science Board. Now, this is all information relayed to me by a DARPA program manager that was directly involved in it. This is all on-the-record stuff. But before we get too far in the weeds about that, the drone, I want you to think about this with the drone system technology, right? Where you talked about the army of drones, we can both visualize, coming up over the horizon to go after you. Well, have a look when you go home, and anyone listening, have a look at the CIA's Briar program, okay? I know you work for the agency, but I also know you're not responsible for all of their programs. As soon as you and, say Briar, I think Black Briar, and that's Jason Bourne, and that's that's where Breyer. I'm going. But, okay, Briar yeah. is an acronym for a... a You'll see. Okay. And you have to go to IARPA, which is the CIA's DARPA. Sure. Okay? Yep. But I always look at what IARPA is doing to kind of get an idea of the vast weapon systems of the future. And the Briar program is specifically looking at biometrics, not eyes, not fingerprints, not DNA, mm -hmm. but limb movement. Yeah. Modality. Recognition and, and such, yeah. Now – Ask yourself why. Why do they need to know about how people move? Well, it goes back to this idea of human identification. And ultimately, I hate to say it, but it probably will link up with drone striking. Okay, Because a long holy grail of biometric technology, and I'm sure you know this, has been seeing things at a distance. So you can, you know, the first iris scans were thought up going back to the 90s. When the, Remember the Kobar Towers? Sure. Two terrorists driving a truck bomb as fast as they could at an American military base in Saudi Arabia. 
We, meaning the, the, the guards, saw the truck coming. If only you could do something, right? And what someone in that analysis came up with the idea, and you can look at the origin documents, and, oh my God, if only we could have known the, you know, we could see the whites of his eyes and that kind of let, that is the real origin moment of iris technology. That's when John Daugman started saying, we, you know, let's, let's advance this. So it's fascinating. Okay. You hit on another one that uh, gate recognition is a, is a hobby horse of mine right now because I do think it's an extraordinarily powerful biometric that can be gleaned from at a as distance far, as far away as you can get uh, something distance. that looks at geometry, and and it's one that I would offer to you. The private sector, to my knowledge, right now is is far out in front on gate recognition as a biometric identifier for reasons of fraud and, and a host of other reasons as well. But fraud is the one that pushes so many things forward in the private sector from a technological standpoint because it's it's about saving money and mm-hmm. saving money drives lots of innovation and multi-factor authentication. Right now, you know, can you walk up to an ATM machine and, and never be fearful that someone can use your card ever again because not only you won't even need your card uh, in this circumstance, right? Your biometrics will be your password and uh, Bank of America did this already. They've tested it. An ATM machine where you need nothing but walk up and present yourself to the ATM machine in order to access your bank account because they are so confident in the biometrics of this and, and of which gate mm-hmm. is one of them. So crazy was this for people who used it that they had to put the pin back onto the machine purely for psychological reasons because people could not handle the idea that their account was open when they walked up. But this is one where I think the private sector is going to get there first and they're not even going to make any attempt to protect the technology that ends up being able to, you know, effectively see in the dark. I don't know, but here's my thought on that, right? So it's interesting that you say fraud, but I still think that DARPA has more money. And when I say DARPA, I also now mean IARPA and God knows NRO probably has their own ARPA at this point. But but so I think IARPA's is NROs as well. So is that, they they yeah, share it? The I, IARPA is the, the intelligence, intelligence community. Yes, yeah. but I'm sure they have their own secret one, right, that we don't know about and we will in 10 years. Um, but what comes to mind is a program involving limb regeneration, right? So in other words, and this was something that was funded by DARPA, and the scientists who I interview who were doing this, this is one day of the idea that we could grow back a limb, right? Sure. Yeah. And like kind of, you know, human salamanders, right? Yeah. But I was asking, why isn't the private sector, why didn't the private sector lead on this? Because you would think there would be so much money in it. And, you know, a whole host of reasons that became clear were somewhat obvious. They said, an interesting thing to me, which is that DARPA is willing to invest, the government, the U.S. government is willing to invest in technology 50 years out, and the private sector is not. Yeah, that's a, a great DARPA example, I think, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to noodle that one uh, a little bit, because you're right, the government is much more capable of spending money way into the future. They're not uh, looking for a return tomorrow. Right. I mean, DARPA is never looking for a return other than being successful about 15% of the time and know, not being beaten and not being beaten. And so, and, and that, by the way, before it sounds like I'm like anti DARPA, which I'm not, I tried to just be agnostic on reporting these things, but even some of the scientists said to me, you know, uh, how would you like it if Saudi Arabia or 
China or comes up with the newest weapon system that the U.S. cannot defeat. And so if you flip that around, you think of, now we're circling back to the point that you made that really has me thinking about whether or not China will develop the new surveillance system. Like what? It, what is the next step that it will do with its biometric catalog, its surveillance system capabilities? Where will that go? I think we know. So I think this where is... Where is that? So it's everywhere where there's a hike vision camera or a Huawei router or a Huawei 5G mm-hmm. system. Uh, you know, one of the fascinating things that I've learned about China, and again, I, I've gotten more from the Human Rights Watch reports on China, on technology at least, than I have from any other quarter. And uh, The Human Rights Watch, who will not admit that China's Uyghur program was taken out of the Defense Department playbook, despite my asking them to, because it we was. Could, we could get, we, maybe we'll go down that rabbit yeah. hole here in okay, a second. Sorry, I'm, I caught you no, no, that's okay. That, that, that's an interesting one, too. And, and you referenced that earlier, and I didn't totally follow it as a lead, but, but maybe we can circle back to that one, because I don't know that I fully understand that one. But here we are. I'm convinced. I couldn't be talked out of it at this point that China is definitely doing a masterfully better job than us at designing a surveillance state in a way that just works really well. And inside the United States? No, no, I'm sorry, inside okay. China. Inside, inside China. and outside. But will they be able to This is where they're starting to export us. it right now. So like a really good example is, uh, you know, they have these light poles in China that you maybe read about that are just passive signals collectors at this point. They're perfect for it, right? The, the, the design of the light pole has to be powered and now they're solar powered. It's just perfect for passive signals collection. And so the Chinese are, are masters at collecting the unique identifiers of your phone that your phone broadcasts out all the time. In China, you have to have your ID card on you all the time, no matter who you are. And there's an RFID mm-hmm. indicator in there. There's RFID indicators and all kinds of ID cards, including some US ID cards now. And these passive signals collectors are just constantly looking out for this information in order to, like you said earlier, find someone if they need to be found at the last point that they went by a sensor. My fear is, and, and this is not a fear, it's now we're seeing it happen in reality. They're exporting these tools to other countries, some of whom are don't have nefarious intentions for them, but why not have the switch to turn on should you need it? And then others of them are absolutely looking to control populations with them. And as they continue to export these technologies, they're just going to get, the Chinese Communist Party, Chinese, Chinese Communist Party is just going to get better and better at it. And then because they'll always own that data for the most part, even when some of these countries try to fight back against the Chinese taking this data back to China, they're usually failing at that. They will know more and more about the world, going back to data as a weapon and data as a way to know the future. They will know more and more about the future with those data collection systems than we ever will because we just won't do that, at least not as a... Well, will they know more about the future or will they know more about the present? Well, they certainly the present, right? They'll, they'll know the present for sure. My concern is as you collect data at scale and you aggregate it and you use machine learning and AI, you know, mm-hmm. machine learning and AI has tons of foibles. A lot of the ideas about where it's going to take us right now are probably not correct. And, you know, I think there's a strong argument that we're entering maybe another AI winter right now. I, I think if we are, it'll be short, but we won't go there. Google will certainly have something to say about if there will be an AI winter right now based on the amount of money they're putting into this. But I think when you look at the way that you can use data to look at past behavior, well, humans are creatures of habit. And we activity-based intelligence. Yes, I was thinking about it when you said that. As you start to think about how China can think about that data, look that they can look back into the past 
and see what the data tells them about the past, it's almost certainly a good predictor of the future. That last line is where you lost me. So, Because I don't think, I, I think that the past is a good predictor of pattern of life intelligence, right? Like, so specifically if I, but it's not a predictor of the future at all to my mind because favorite things to write about. Fate and circumstance mm-hmm. intervene in our lives in the big picture and we go on different paths. And so you could, I think I would qualify that if I was to agree or disagree and say some sectors of the, in some sectors of the population, it is predictable, but in others it is not. Yeah, I'm sure maybe a concrete example in talking about predicting the future, what, what I see this causing is we don't even need to continue to focus on the People's Republic of China and the Chinese government because there are plenty of companies that are doing this right now for profit where they will look at the data that represents an indicator of something that's now proven. Google searches of COVID symptoms was one of my most favorite examples of ways you could use data to predict things or know things that were happening in the present that you could know no other way, right? Google was proved very good at knowing when the next COVID outbreak was going to happen because people were searching their symptoms in massive amounts of ways. That's interesting. And so what you know then is there's some other piece of data that probably predates the search of symptoms. I can't postulate what it is. The machine can know it in retrospect. Now in retrospect, it can go back and like, okay, we knew that here the symptoms increased because of the searches. Is there something that happened before the symptoms that's also in the data that machine learning can help us pull out? And that's what I mean, tell the future. So now they go back and they say, okay, uh, Uyghur citizen X traveled from this gas station to that storefront. Once he got to that storefront, he met with a dissident leader. That's forbidden. Okay, we tracked the gas station to the storefront. Well, something happened before the gas station. We didn't know what it was until now, but now let's go back and look at that. Okay, now we found out that he only borrows his neighbor's car when he's going to go visit the dissident. Now we know when he borrows the neighbor's car, that that's what he's going to do in the future. So that's what I mean yes. when I say in the future. I'm with you, and the reason I'm smiling is because it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with the origin story of things, because I'm having a flashback of Bud Whelan, the first director of science and technology for CIA, you know, age 80 or however old he was, describing to me what it was like those first moments to look at the very first photographic images from the very first corona satellites. And exactly that. Of course, they didn't have the guy, you know, at the 7-Eleven 10 minutes before because the intervals of the photographs were different because they were analog. But that's exactly how it began. And so what I'm interested in is less than predicting the future is more understanding how it came to be, right? And then I think the idea about predicting the future becomes a big gasp and maybe just curiosity because I'm not in the intelligence business and you guys in the intelligence business, it's your job to know what's going to happen. In the, you know, <laughs> but the, okay, but now we get into okay, we're smiling, but we should not be smiling. Oh, because, for sure. I, I can see right? Because unbelievable hazard. Yeah. Because, well, because, and another thing is, is that I know, I, I'm, I'm sure we have a similar life experience in what I'm about to say. And you from being an insider at CIA and me from being an outsider interviewing decades worth of people or people who for decades served the intelligence and military community. And that is that 
they're just human. They're just a bunch of guys and women. They're just a bunch of people. There's not, they're not like, I mean, with exception, you know, a few Nobel laureates I have interviewed are exceptional in terms of how they think and what they think. But for the most part, it's a bunch of people being like, okay, we got to come up with something. Oh my God, we got to spy on yeah. the Soviet Union. What the hell are we going to do? Right. Yes. Yep. So the point being is that people are just human and in the United States tend to solve problems when asked, right? And that's where I would agree with you on the private sector, where the private sector is really beginning to lead and in many ways is becoming almost as interesting to me as military intelligence technology. Because those individuals, when you look at the real technology founders and what they're doing now, they're realizing they feel like they have a reason. And what's interesting is that's often led by numbers, by dollars, whereas military intelligence is led by national security. How will those merge in the coming years? I think we're both interested in that. Oh, yeah. This is something I think about uh, almost every day. You've opened the door, at least a crack, uh, to one of the last topics that I would like to discuss with you. You covered one that I like to bring up, and I, I will try to bring up all the time about my, my colleagues in government across the whole of government, but the intelligence and special operations community in particular. And that I want to say it as often as I can for people who don't really understand and haven't had the inside picture. They are just people, right? They're your neighbors. They're your classmates from college. They go home and change dirty diapers just the same as the rest of us. They worry about these problems. They worry about their work and the consequences of it. And they, for the most part, for the most part, have truly, you know, not only the United States best interest at heart, but humanity's best interest at heart. That's what I've found anyway. One of the things we promised to do in this podcast, and I would like to do every single time if I can, is have the difficult conversations that sometimes people don't know how to have. One of the things you you wrote about, and, and we, we hit on it a couple of times as you walked through your, your stories here, was surprise, kill, vanish. This is a really tricky one, I think, for the agency in its current form, right? Because the agency has a very storied past and it is always trying to almost write its own present and future right now. And this is a tricky one because I think when you write history and you tell the stories of um, Billy Waugh and, and the folks from Max Huckabee and, and some of the things I had to do, uh, and then you fast forward to Afghanistan, and this is where I'm finding myself knowledgeable about a topic maybe be the only one <laughs> that we really discussed that I feel like I have some command of. You reference a source in one of your books that comes back from Afghanistan and has a sniper rifle and a knife. And some of us will hear that who know these stories quite well. And we'll look at that individual two ways, right? Here's, here's an opportunity for him to tell some of his stories. And we all tell stories slightly differently than we might maybe would if we heard the story and then were able to tell it. Or some people just, for whatever reason, decide to tell a story the way that they would like themselves to be viewed. And I picked this one in particular because when I thought about him talking about killing someone silently with a knife, I think a good number of us would look at an individual like that if we were there for that particular retelling of the story and say, that's not how 
it is in those locations anymore. We would judge that person, I think, to a certain degree. Now, it will be quite comical should I know that person, and I have not judged them, and I'm not asking for who that person is, and, and, and I wouldn't. But when I hear that, it, it, it brings me to a point where I want to ask, like, when you, when you get that information from a source and you don't necessarily have 12 people to interview at that time and say, does that perspective represent your perspective? What gives you the confidence to, maybe confidence is not the right word, how, what does it make you feel when you have to rely on that person's story to sort of be the story for the whole thing? Mm-hmm. No, it's okay, great. But I, two, clarify two things for me. One, are you saying that you might not believe what the source said is true? And two, are you saying that you, your perspective is that I should have someone else corroborate an individual source's statements? And wow. I mean this just earnestly for clarification, and I'm going to speak to both of them. So I, the first thing, going with the latter first, because okay. that's the easy one. I don't think I would, I would not, by any means, attempt to tell you how to do that portion of your job. I've never been an investigative reporter, and I certainly can slightly glean the challenge of being an investigative reporter into a secret domain. A corroborative source would be great, I'm sure. Anytime you can get it, but how many can you actually get in this in this realm? It's tricky. So not that. No, I don't know necessarily that. It's not that I don't believe him. Like there's, it's warfare. There's lots of ways you conduct warfare. And unfortunately, there's lots of ways to kill a person. It's more the way that he conveyed it. Okay. Whether or not he did it or okay. not. Okay. So two things to say about that. One, remember I'm an outsider. Okay. So I have no horse in the race. I don't need to make CIA look good or bad. I don't need to make DARPA look good or bad. I. Totally. I try to keep my opinions about things to myself. I've written a, you know, I won't digress there. Okay. I heard on your podcast another a colleague speaking who I respect, but he said something that made me smile because I, in my experience, I know a different story, right? He mm-hmm. said, you, and I'm paraphrasing him, you have to understand, people have this idea about CIA that it's guys running around doing rogue things. We write everything down. Everything is paper. Sure. And I thought, hmm, well, that's interesting because I have an on the record, and again, not to defy this fellow, but just to, un- this is what it is being an outsider, right? I have an on the record interview with Kofor Black, who was second only to the director of CIA, telling me, quote unquote, that he used to give, everything to Billy Wall verbally. It was never written down. And the point he was making was a little bit snarky with me. I quote him directly in the book, something like, Annie, you have no idea, you know, because everything that really mattered only got spoken between me and Billy. Of course, we don't write everything down, which I know to be true from 10 other CIA guys I've interviewed who, many of whom have now died, but people like Bud Whelan, people who are major players. So there's no such thing as everything is true, which kind of also speaks to the critics because most of my critics are like, she is ridiculous, that never, dot, dot, dot. Well, show me a that never, right? It's just, that's just, in my opinion, a little myopic, right? But I want, what I want to say about that source is that, first of all, two things. One, no one has any idea what I don't write in my books. And the things I don't <laughs> write in my books are what sources say to me, Annie, I'm going to tell you something about me. About me. And this is called trust, right? This is because 
what matters most to me, and at the end of my life, when I go to the grave and look back at my books, I want to know that I represented the best I could the people who trusted me with their life story, their heroics, their failures, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And they, almost everyone who has really meant something to me that I have worked with as a source over long periods of time has taken me to the side with no recorder running, no one listening, and told me one or two or ten incredibly painful things about themselves, things that I relate to and things that make me a better person because guess what? I'm not perfect and neither are you and neither are they and they are just another human being like you said in the lead-in question to here, trying to do what they think is the right job, okay? Because I don't write about villains. I write about villains in the third person. And so to answer your question about the fellow in my living room, he's a trusted source. I've known him longer than any other, almost any other source. I knew him back when he was a federal agent. And so I know, period. Yeah, and I, so it's an interesting way to have this conversation, right? Because I wouldn't call into question what he did or what he didn't do because I don't know. And I can certainly see where opportunities would present itself to conduct yourself in, in that way. It was more the, the, the manner that it was conveyed and not because I agree or disagree with what was being discussed. I mean, you can see like I'm even having trouble saying it out loud as I try to navigate the, the hazards of my... But look, you know what I think you're touching upon? I think what you're really touching upon is the second part of that I reported in there, right? And I think this is true of all of us as humans because what I said at the end of that story, and to me it doesn't really matter how I reported the story, what, you know, I mean, it. what matters is what I felt in terms of my own hypocrisy at the end of that experience, which is that later that night, I sat around go feeling funny that I could accept him shooting someone from a distance, mm -hmm. but I had trouble thinking about someone who I know, trusted, care about, yeah. stabbing someone to death. Yeah. That just freaked me out. Yeah. I'm not a war fighter. Yeah. I, I am Annie Jacobson, a journalist who sits at home and writes and interviews people out in the field. And the thought that really got me in the gut, no pun intended. And it really made me think about hypocrisy, about perception, about morality, about, and I think that's when I really think about it. And that's, I just want to be a better storyteller, meaning I want to tell, get more at a certain truth. And you're never going to please everybody. So just pretend that 50% of the people are going to dislike you and 50% of them are going to like you. But I know for my own self, I want to get at, you know, it's every book I write is a, is, Every book you read is a mirror at you. So I think that bothered you because it probably bothers, there's probably something about your own self that you will advance. One of two things will happen to you. You'll either advance your thinking and become more evolved or more thoughtful because of it, or you'll become a dumb critic. Oh, I, you, 100% you're correct. And I mean, you, you're talking about you not having been a warfighter, but yet that makes you squeamish. And again, I've been in and around combat, but I've never been in a combat situation. I've never been in firefight. And, you know, even though I trained and probably have that mindset still operational in there, and it gives me 
pause to think that through. That's certainly one piece. And there's no question, 100%. That's right. The second one is also this this feeling that I have about that community, which I feel I I owe something. I do. I don't feel I owe something to that community, especially that I've chosen to have a public voice on this. And on this one in particular, I wanted to make sure we discussed it. And, and mm-hmm. I love the way you're discussing it because I think we're getting at it is the other picture that that paints to a lot of folks who don't know any better, right, is of an organization that's out there with with kill squads across the world potentially in large numbers and and how much is that representative of a greater organization and this is where i'm happy to reveal my inside information on this and say that that's that's just not the case that that exists and even if the in there's history to point to where it did and and there's no question you have the history down way better embarrassingly so uh better than me but in the part that i know not because it was history but because mm-hmm. i lived it it just doesn't when exist. You, like when that. you live something, you have your individual experience. True. When you're a historian slash investigative journalist, you have the entire broad perspective of it. So I rarely have judgment on a lot of the things I'm writing about, particularly if they're from the Korean War, for example. Sure. Right? Yeah. But you are called to count with your own internal moral scale. Sometimes, and that's where I think it becomes really interesting. And I also think you're going to open yourself up to criticism with it, and you have to really not care at a point because because what I'm more interested in is what I want. The reason why I use that as a prologue in Surprise Kill Vanish is because I wanted people to be able to think precisely about what you're saying. Like, why is it okay? to perceive the Jedbergs, the OSS Jedbergs who, who killed Nazis with knives as fantastic. And let's see some more movies about them. And somehow think it's, it's toxic masculinity or whatever the buzzword is of today, which I find mm. ridiculous for some guy in Afghanistan to ju- you know, risk his life, jump out of a aircraft and go kill someone at the president's behest. Why is that wrong? Why is it better to drone strike someone? I don't have the answer. You can tell from how heated I get that I obviously recognize that these things are really complex. Right. And if you're going to just send out a simple tweet that says, like, men are terrible, you know, you're just not my reader. Now, that that's, it makes total sense. And I should definitely make sure that I, I hit this one, too. I don't think killing someone with a knife in Afghanistan, if you found yourself in a position where that was the way that you needed to do it and, and you, you had to do it in order to either preserve your life, accomplish the thing you're trying to do, or protect somebody else? No question. Not wrong, in my opinion. In an absolutely legitimate way to get that done if it needs to be done. I wouldn't disagree there at all. And certainly, that's happened. I, I don't know. I don't have mm-hmm. an example of that, and I'm not revealing some incident that I'm aware of, but my, my gut tells me that that has happened. I think it's incredibly rare for lots of reasons that we could do a whole other podcast on. World War One uh, experiments uh, abound on this in the trenches. But it, it was more, I wanted to get there, and I think I got there a little bit slabbily because I don't have as much practice at this, just le- wanting to get out there that, even if that did happen, and I, and I presume that it did, I'm not judging the source, it isn't representative of 99% of CIA operations at this point in time, which I have certainty of. Like I, I know this for a fact. I'm making up the percentage. I don't I have to do some math to actually figure it out. And I just wanted people to know that, at least from me, even if we disagreed. And we can certainly disagree on that one maybe another time because I, I know where I've, I've got you up against the clock here and I want to ask you one more thing and totally pivot from this. I wanted to 
end on a totally different note and see if we can't just take a shot at some optimism that you might feel for the yes. world. Because I mean, we went deep I into the, the pessimism. I am the mother of two sons. I am an optimist <laughs> at heart. So if you're if you're looking at the world right now and you're looking at all these technologies, it could be the technologies, it could be the the way the world is shaping up in in other ways. What gives you hope? What what makes you feel optimistic right now? Is it one of these brilliant inventions will bring the cure to cancer, or do you think that at some point we'll design a, mm-hmm. a, a war fighting technology that will cause peace to break out across the world? I think because I am a narrative storyteller at heart, I would have to say it has to do with information, right? The kind of information that advances thinking, advances ideas takes people into a place that they couldn't have possibly imagined, right? And what comes to mind, particularly when I hear on the pessimistic side of things, social media is ruining children, et cetera, et cetera, right? I just, I don't think that way at all. Mm. And I think what I think about is more like someone like James Burke, the British science historian, talking about the advent of the printing press and how people went crazy when it was invented because before that only the the you know the clergy knew how to read and only and therefore the clergy could give the people the information you know stovepiped in the manner that they would that they needed to be good and moral i mean you get the idea here it's like oh my god you're just depriving we the masses of the ability to think and grow and learn and prosper as individuals. And that is what I care about. And I don't care what century we are in. It doesn't change. It comes to me through information. It used to be storytelling. Now it's reading. I resisted reading my own books because I thought people should be reading. I was a bit like the the old clergy saying that, you know. I read my my books on tape outperform my actual paper copies sold because people like to listen. They're getting information. I think we're at the hopeful thing is that we're in this real sea change literally of how people deal with all this technology at their fingertips. And it will only get better and more exciting. I love it. That was perfect. I would have given that, that to you written down if I could have. That's exactly where I wanted to go. Annie, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I want to thank you for coming. Is there any any hint that you can give about the upcoming book? I know you probably got all kinds of legal. It's about nuclear war and it scares even me. Well, you hit the current affairs button right on the head with that. Maybe I should have asked for that hint earlier, but that I, I'll look forward to that. And, uh, we'll all pray that you don't get uh, scooped by some crazy event in in the world here. But thank you very much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Please go and rate the show if you haven't already. Consider writing a review. And please forward this on to anyone that you think might find it interesting. Thank you very much.